What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff Show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Atlanta, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am now joined by Arizona Diamondbacks legend, who I was watching when I was like 10 years old. I'm sorry to make you feel a little bit old, Luis Gonzalez, but um, I'm excited that he is here this afternoon. Luis, how are you doing? Good, Chase. How are you doing, man? Thanks for having me. I'm excited, man. This is going to be a lot of fun. I have a lot of questions for you, but um, it is kind of funny to think about because I, I obviously have been talking um, we chat about like getting you on the podcast and things like that. And then I was thinking back of like my first memory of you, but I remember you celebrating as a kid, like the jumping up and down and just the, that whole world series. I think that might be outside of the Cubs and Indians from a couple of years ago, the most memorable world series in my lifetime. It's kind of wild to think about. You had a big impact on my childhood, apparently. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. That was definitely a lot of fun. And uh, you know, you talk about your childhood, you dream about being in that situation when you're a little kid, but you, you play that scenario out and you jump around in your backyard or out in the street, but you really don't know how you're going to react when it really happens to you in real life. And for me, it was a very surreal moment in my life to uh, get the game winning hit of the game seven. Did anyone text you or texting? This is 2001. Did anyone tell you about after like, what were you doing? Jumping up and like, did you, did anyone, family, friends, just like, what kind of reaction was that? No, I mean, you know, of course, they always said that I didn't have any hops or anything like that. <laughs> I couldn't get off the ground. But uh, no, I think everybody was pretty much excited for me. And just, uh, you know, just, just you know, everybody told me just enjoy the moment. And, and really, you don't know how many times you're going to get to win a world championship. We thought that was going to be the start of a long run for us. And realistically, mm-hmm. it's, it's extremely hard to get to that moment and to to be able to get to a World Series for a lot of great players that have played the game that have never even gotten to playoffs, much less a World Series. Well, I want to ask you some questions about, I'm also a lefty, uh, Luis, and I wanted to get your perspective on when you're a hitter and you're coming up the ranks, um, what is better about learning how to bat um, in baseball as a lefty? What are the advantages? What were things that you taught and things that you realized that righties can't do that lefties will always have an advantage at the plate? Well, I mean, if you look at the history of the game, there's a huge, uh, you know, there's the majority of the pitchers in the game are right-handed. 
but you also, as a left-handed hitter, you have to be able to learn how to hit left-handed pitching because those are the left-handed specialists that will come in to face you late in the game or the starter sometimes. And if you can't hit a lefty, you probably are going to be a platoon player for your most of your career. Mm-hmm. So I think for uh, for a guy like me early in my career, you learn, hey, I better learn how to hit these left-handers if I want to be an everyday player. And that's one of the uh, – but the advantage you have is you're faced mostly right-handers most of the time because yeah. you look at a lineup, you know, usually there's six or seven guys that are uh, right-handed hitters, and then, you know, there's only the one or two left-handers in there unless you're a switch hitter and things mm-hmm. like that. So you usually have an advantage when you're going into the game. Did you ever want to be a switch hitter? Uh, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would have probably tried to learn how to do it. I was still trying mm. to master how to hit left-handed when I was a young <laughs> kid. So, uh, but <clears throat> I mean, you look at now a lot of the great players, uh, they're either really good at one side or they are, you know, really good at being switch hitting guys that can go out there and, you know, mix it up when they, when they can, you know, a guy like a Chipper Jones or yeah. Eddie Murray, guys like that, that are really good at switch hitting. Was there anyone in particular when you were growing up that you were trying to model your swing after? Uh, not really. I mean, I changed my swing so many times in my career. I think later on in my career is when I really opened up. I played at the old Tiger Stadium that had the short porch in right field. So it really taught me how to open up my stance and try to pull more balls. I, you know, when I started, I started in the Houston Astrodome with the mm-hmm. Astros. So, you know, it's a big ballpark. I wasn't going to be able to hit, you know, 20 plus. So I was more of a doubles hitter early in my career. And as my career went on, I learned how to elevate the ball and learn how to pull more pitches. And uh, that's when my home runs really started jumping. Are you envious of the players today getting to play in the launch angle revolution just with how many dingers everybody's hitting and just that new emphasis on just home runs and strikeouts? Or are you glad that you played in the era that you did? No, I love the era that I played in really. I, I, you know, today's generation the players are just bigger and stronger um i mean you look at kids coming out of high school now and college these guys are huge i mean my top weight that i played in the big leagues was 205 that was the most i ever weighed in the big leagues and and now guys two or five are average uh are average weight right now you got guys 215 220 plus pounds uh, that are going out there and playing every day and really carrying their weight well and, and running and doing everything, hitting for power. There is a lot more strikeouts in today's game, but the velocity and the way these guys play is just totally different now than it, what, what it used to be. What was the best part of playing in Arizona for you? What, what, what do you miss most? Uh, just the competition and being able to, you know, we knew we were going to play every night. We played in a dome stadium, great crowds. Um, it was, our division was outstanding because most of the teams the proximity of travel and things like that for us in our division were very close, Colorado, LA, San Diego, you know, teams like that. So it made it really easy for us to, to travel, especially playing in the division. But, um, you know, the rivalries with the giants and the Dodgers and things like that, those are things that I miss is running out there and, you know, getting the business from the, you know, the opposing fans yelling at you, <laughs> they hate you and things like that. That's what athletes thrive on, man. They, they kind of turn it up on to, to another level when they, uh, when they have the opposing teams booing you and things like that. That's what ultimate, ultimately that's a sign of respect. That's the way I looked at it. So do you think it's really, really difficult and then under talked about point of just playing with no crowds right now is 
just trying to get amped up for a lot of these guys? Uh, yeah, I think you're seeing it on a lot of guys, especially the big name guys that really thrive on the crowd and uh, mm. superstar players that are struggling. There's a, a bunch of big name guys that were, you know, all stars and MVPs that are really struggling this year is because, you know, a lot of times they're hyped guys and they like to get you know excited and hyped up with the the crowd and the the crowd really isn't there. You know, they're piping in the noise from uh, crowds and things like that, but it's totally different than being out there and playing in front of. 30, 40,000 people that are screaming your name and getting you excited when you're going up to the plate. And, and your focus, man, it's a lot tougher for these guys to really concentrate and focus more when there's no, uh, when really there isn't a big crowd out there. Who are your guys on the road? Um, whether it was Houston, Arizona coming up, obviously we'll get to Tino uh, in a second, but um, do you have a great road story uh, playing in the big leagues? And uh, maybe just uh, who who are your guys on uh, the Diamondbacks and Astros and teams like that? Uh, well, I mean, with Houston, I was a young player coming up. You know, Bagwell, Biggio, those guys were always great to me. And uh, we were all good friends. When I went to Arizona, it was a veteran team. I used to hang out with uh, Steve Finley, Craig Council, those guys. Okay. Uh, what What's fun about you know that is when you go on the road, uh, usually travel in packs and you go to dinners. You know, you get to a different city early enough. If you play a day game, you you land kind of early, six seven o'clock in the evening. You you get to the hotel, you you check in, and then you uh, you take off. You go have a nice dinner that night, and I think that was the you know one of the fun parts about being with great teammates and stuff is breaking bread with them and being able to sit around and tell stories and and just enjoy the company of those guys because you spend just as much time with those guys as you do your family. Um, do you still keep up with counsel and uh, give him pointers at all? <laughs> we'll give him pointers. He's he's a pretty good manager. And- he's pretty good. Yeah, he, you could tell he was going to be a manager when we played together on really? the field. Guys like him and Jay Bell that I played with, these guys were just knowledgeable. If you look back at our 2001 team, uh, a big majority of those guys, I would say over 75% of those guys are still involved with baseball somehow, whether it's um, in the broadcasting capacity or just working for an organization or a team. And uh, that was just a good baseball-minded team. A lot of those guys just love being around the game and love being around the players and different things like that. That's why I'm not surprised to see some of those guys, managers, whether it's in the minor leagues or in the big leagues and other guys doing broadcasting and things like that. It was just a fun group of guys that always love talking baseball. What was the most difficult park for you to hit in? Oh, man. For me, I didn't like hitting in uh, – at the Milwaukee Brewers park for me, huh. it was all tough there. I, uh, yeah, for some reason I just, I couldn't pick the ball up well in that park for some reason, whatever it is. Interesting. I was not expecting that. I was not expecting Miller. Interesting. Um, what was your game day routine? Did you have a, like a strict one where you're like, I have to get this in or I'm just going to be off tonight? No. Well, my routine was always getting to the park early. I just love getting to the ballpark. Usually around uh, one o'clock, I was probably one of the first guys there, aside from the clubhouse guys. And I just love hanging out there and just being around those guys before my teammates got there and just kind of getting to know them. And uh, and then after the games, uh, when you're on the road, you just kind of sit around and drink a you know cold beer or something after the game and watch TV and just you know watch other guys playing and and just talk baseball. I I I love being at the park. It was my job, and I I enjoyed 
that part of it, just being there early and staying late. And, you know, I just felt like it was something that I'd love doing. What was your go-to beer? Uh, I was a Bud Light guy. Bud Light guy. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, most difficult pitcher you faced during your career? Oh, man. I think Woody Williams was one of the guys. Uh, Jamie Moyer was a left-hander that was really tough on me. He didn't throw hard, but he always seemed to, you know, I I would have those comfortable 0 for 3, 0 for 4s where you feel really good at the plate, and then at the end of the day, you didn't really get any hits or anything off him. Um, yeah, guys like that. Woody Williams was one that kept throwing cutters in on my hands, and I just couldn't get extended on him and really get a comfortable at-bat against him. What do you think is the key for hitters – to get over slumps like when are when they're looking did you when you were going through a slump were you just checking the box scores were you just checking the numbers were you going back watching a bunch of tape but like how do you recommend young hitters today get over slumps and get past it well i think if you look at the uh i think the the what separates the good players from the great players are the you know the great players are the ones that can get out of slumps quicker i think they just simplify things they don't overanalyze and I think a lot of times that's what happens in today's generation we have so much so many computers and different markings of you know what guys are doing wrong and what they're doing well is they overanalyze sometimes instead of just keeping it simple um you know one of the best things I ever you know I had some great hitting coaches but one of the best uh people that gave me an advice was one of my trainers one time he just told me to go up there and stay stupid. Don't think and just go up there and see the ball react and hit it. And and really, I started to use that later on in my career, and it really helped me get to uh, to that next level. Stay stupid. I like that. Um, well, what would you say uh, is the key to playing into your, your 40s? I mean, you retired at, what, 40 years old, I think, exactly? Yeah. Um, yeah. What is the key? Because you're still hitting 275 at 39. How do you, How do you do that? Just enthusiasm. I had love for the game, and I always wanted to get better. And I, I kind of used it as a, uh, you know, uh, you see all the young kids come in, and I always wanted to outwork them and show them by example that, you know, when they came in the ballpark, I was already there. I was dressed and ready to go and working out and doing different things, and you know, just showing them, hey, you know, I, I wasn't a very gifted player when I started. I just worked hard to get to that next level, and. They could do the same thing if they continue to work hard. So, you know, I've seen so many great players, especially early in my career, that had promising careers that kind of threw it away from not working hard or being out there. And three or four years later, you're still playing and they're sitting in the stands or calling you for tickets. So it's just one of those things that I just learned to appreciate the game. I never took things for granted and I always wanted to work hard and out try to out hustle and outwork everybody. So let's talk about um, growing up um, with Tino in Tampa and um, your experience with the Easton Bat. Uh, why is the Easton Bat so important to you? Well, I mean, you know, they they come out with a new bat this year that's getting launched here in the next couple of days. And for me, it's exciting because it brings back so many great memories. I mean, that Easton green and silver bat was something that uh, if you go back and talk to a lot of former big league guys – that were playing in that in that uh, you know late seventies, early eighties, nineties era. They talk about that bat because of the simple fact that it was a it was the bona fide bat, man, in the college world series and in uh, little leagues and in high school, college. 
Um, that was the bat everybody wanted to have and the bat that everybody was using. You looked at all the great players that were playing in, at the time and they were using that bat and you wanted to be the next the next guy and you felt like that bat, you weren't going to get there unless you used that, that Easton bat. And for me, you know, when they asked me, hey, we're bringing back that new bat, man, it brought a smile to my face, uh, brought back so many great memories. And that's why I'm excited for this next generation of kids to be able to to use a bat that so many of us used in the past. What do you think would happen if uh, MLB just did a weekend of aluminum? What would that look like? Would well, it just I be would, every home run every time? It'd be very scary. I think, you know, for a lot of guys, it might be a little difficult to go back to using an aluminum bat because they've been using a wood bat for so long now, but it would be scary, especially how big and how hard some of these guys are. You know, they're hitting balls off the bat over 100 miles an hour. So imagine with an aluminum bat what it, what kind of damage it would do. What was your favorite <laughs> moment with the aluminum bat growing up? Oh, man. I You know, I think for me it was just, uh, you know, playing in high school with it and then playing in college, being able to, you know, you know, the competition and things like that. And, and that was a bat that lasted forever for me. It's, uh, you know, I still – I brought back – uh, the old bat my mom had it at the house and once they said they were bringing back you know a new bat I you know the new eastern bat I told them you know I got to find that bat I got to find it my mom found it and shipped it over and uh and I have it here so yeah she it kept brings, it yeah absolutely so I have a lot of great memories uh when I look at that bat or when I hold it it still has the old tape on it and things like that so it's pretty cool what was it like growing up in Tampa with Tino <clears throat> oh, it was a lot of fun I mean we were teammates uh, we were good friends and, uh, we played against some great competition over there. You know, you think of, you know, in Tampa, Florida, where we grew up, it was a hotbed of baseball, uh, back in the late eighties, early nineties, there were so many guys within a 30 mile radius that were all big leaguers. You think of Wade Boggs, your Dwight Goodens, your Gary Sheffields, all of us, we all played against each other, played, uh, you know, you know, in, in different, uh, high schools, but, you know, playing in little league and, and, and things like that. So the competition level was extremely high. If you lived in that area, did you ever want to play for the devil race? <clears throat> I did. I actually did. Uh, that was the main reason that, uh, I signed with the Detroit Tigers because I was a free agent and, uh, the Tigers had kind of enticed me to come over saying the first, uh, game, uh, of record is going to be played against the Tampa Bay Rays and you have a chance to be playing uh, for the Detroit Tigers there. And I did, I ended up uh, hitting the first Homer uh, on opening night there against the Rays. So the first, huh. uh, the first official home run, I have two firsts there at that ballpark. Okay. The first official home run and Wade Boggs hit one uh, half inning later, which he was ticked off because we were both Tampa guys. Uh-huh. And I got him by half an inning. And then I hit the first home run when I was playing for the Dodgers in the Rays tank out there in right center oh. field. Oh. So that was pretty cool to have two first in that ballpark. Do you have a Wade Boggs story? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I used to see him a lot at yeah. uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers games. So he he's a huge <laughs> sports fan and uh, he loves the game. Man, he was he was one of the guys in our area and Tino and I could, you know, Tino could tell you too, when we were in high school, we wanted to be the next uh, Wade Boggs because he was left-handed hitter. We were left-handed hitters and he was a chicken guy. Mm. So at lunchtime, when we would leave high school to go eat lunch, we would drive over to Burger King and uh, get that chicken sandwich, man. We wanted, 
we thought if Wade Boggs did it, we could be the next guys. We're going to eat chicken sandwiches too. That's really cool. Uh, so to wrap up here, Luis, what are what are you up to these days? What is Luis Gonzalez doing uh, post playing career? Well, I'm the father of triplets. My triplets are 22 oh, wow. olds. Yeah, my son plays in the San Francisco Giants minor league organization. I have a daughter who's an actress in L.A. And then my I have two girls and a boy. My other daughter is uh, starting her own uh, fashion boutique. So yeah, it's uh, my wife and I have been very active and, and still. Uh, very hands-on with them. And then I continue to still work in the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks organization as a senior advisor to the president and CEO. So I love being around the game. Uh, I love doing what I do. And uh, I'm, I'm able to still be an ambassador to, you know, people like Easton who have treated me well throughout my career. And I'm able to give back in whatever way it may be in the community. Luis, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Um, good luck with everything in the future. And uh, I guess thanks for the memories because like, I think that's a thing um, for me. But uh, I appreciate uh, you making the time. Thanks, Chase. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. This has been Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves. And I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. As a friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. Goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.